Nice to cry, bro. Thanks. It's lime. Ooh, have you ever had key lime? Yes. It's so much better than lime. So, why is it so much better than lime? I don't know. Also, the- why? <laughs> <laughs> why, as a company, do they make a key lime and a lime? <laughs> like, I'm honestly amazed we still buy lime sometimes. Yeah. I think it's just a mistake and like we meant to get key lime and we we're like oh shit i just saw lime oh well okay. we literally only buy lime if they're out of key lime we, mm-hmm. we will sometimes have lime too but it's only because they were out of the store yeah key lime is so significantly better it's so much better um have you had orange yeah but i don't like orange things like orange really? drinks i like because i love creamsicles but like just yeah. straight orange flavor like orange fanta i'm like what it's not bad but i don't i don't Love it. Dude, I love orange drink. Dude, but I'm a flavor weirdo. Like, I like the taste of artificial grape and artificial banana. I do like, too, actually. I'm a well, jelly guy. Depending on the grape, the quality of the grape flavor, sometimes it's really, really good. Yeah. Sometimes it's like, it reminds me too much of like children's medicine. Like, I have memories <laughs> of my childhood of taking like Here's grape flavor. I'm like, yeah, I'm a tap. I don't want that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But sometimes it's delicious. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. So funny story about orange drink. I think the reason I love it so much now is because I couldn't drink it as a child. Not that I wasn't allowed to drink it. It's that <laughs> literally without fail, regardless of the brand Fanta, uh, what's the other one? Sunkissed, any of them. Every time I drink orange drink, I would have explosive diarrhea <laughs> all day. <laughs> That's awful. Just horrendous diarrhea. And I loved it so much. So I would still get it from time to time. And I'd be like, oh, maybe it's changed. No, nope. I don't have anything to do today. <laughs> same, same outcome every time. But now as an adult, I can drink it and I don't get explosive diarrhea. That's good. You reserve that for Taco Bell now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, just Taco Bell. <laughs> so if I can find, it's rare to find, but if I can find a diet orange soda somewhere, um, you better believe I'm drinking it. Yeah. Better believe it. Yeah, that's pretty solid. Oh, should we do podcasty things? Um, can I pee real quick again? I suppose. No, do it in the chair. I should probably pee again too. What's up, guys? Welcome back to Size, Strength, and Bro Science. I'm your host, Neil Austin, better known as Big Freaking Neil. And I'm joined by a very special guest today. Um, this is a trip for me, man. So if you guys follow me on social media, you probably know that this is not my only podcast. I also have more of a general health and fitness podcast. And my co-host who I refer to commonly as my business partner, buddy brain twin is a gentleman named Alex Kane. What's going on, man? Hey man, you know, same old, same old. Yeah. It's been kind so, of a year like that. What'd you say? It's been kind of a year like that. Same old, same old. It has been one of those years. That's typically the answer that I get every time I ask anybody that question. It's like, Oh, you know, mm-hmm. Mm, kind of, kind of still alive. <laughs> Puttering around the house. 
<laughs> right. Exactly. Oh man. So I wanted to have you on for a couple of big reasons. Uh, the biggest is you are by far the most qualified health coach slash trainer that I know. And that I think exists. Um, <laughs> actually, before we dive in, let's, uh, let's talk about that. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about your background, where you're coming from, how many hundreds of certifications you have now, uh, and sort of what your story is. Uh, pretty much I've been training for almost a decade. Yep. Um, I have a background in as a player and some very competitive baseball leagues in the area that all I thought you meant as a player. Known as a little bit of a player. <laughs> I'm a little more humble about that shit. But <laughs> uh, I mean my, my baseball ended in, in tears with an untimely injury. And that's kind of what catapulted me into training later yeah. on in life. Um, so now, I mean, we started at the same gym at Gold's Gym. Um, and since then, I, I have trained a lot of general population folks, but I also do a ton of corrective exercise, spe special population training yeah. and athletic training. And I've done work with athletes at every form or every level from amateur and like junior high athletes all the way through professional athletes and ranging from everything from rehab and corrective exercise to performance enhancement in their sports specific disciplines. So yeah. it's been a lot, man. It's been great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man, that that's a big reason why I wanted to have you on because you are super, super qualified to talk about anything fitness. Uh, but you have a very unique perspective being completely detached, I guess, from the bodybuilding space. Yeah. So I think you bring a really valuable perspective to this podcast as sort of an outsider looking in, but you're super qualified to speak on all of it, which is really, really exciting. So with that in mind, as more of a general population coach and corrective exercise specialist, what is sort of, if you had to define your general take on the madness, the freak show that is bodybuilding, uh, what would you say that is? So you're going to get a lot of a really annoying answer today where everything exists within context. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think bodybuilding in general is great for a lot of reasons and for a lot of people. Yeah. Um, the, the reasons that I like bodybuilding is it gets a lot of attention and it causes a lot of initial goal setting for people. Nice. Um, yeah. I mean the, the Arnold's on ESPN, right? So people see this stuff and there, there's a thousand Instagram accounts and YouTube channels, all this kind of stuff. There's constant exposure to people who are in fantastic shape. And at the yeah. onset, I think there's a lot of really inspiring stuff that goes on there where someone goes, you know what? Big freaking Neil is built like a brick shit house. I want to be built like big freaking Neil. Yeah. And that gets them started on a journey. And I think that's really, really important. Yeah. Okay. Um, so with that in mind, more specifically, I guess, do you think bodybuilding as a sport, as an industry is a benefit or a detriment to fitness as a whole? I think it's about 50, 50, honestly. Okay. Interesting. I, th I think um, 
as a sport and, and I use the term sport for all kinds of stuff um, as, as a competition, I think it is absolutely awesome. Mm-hmm. I think the lengths that physique athletes go to show such ridiculous discipline and such acute understanding of their body and yeah. how it works, both from a nutrition and a training standpoint, um, that you can't deny that it is absolutely worth all the trophies and things like that that people compete for. I mean, yeah. it, it's really hard. I couldn't do it. I don't, I have, I don't have what it takes to do well at that sport. And I can tell you that a hundred percent, honestly. Yeah. Um, I think on the other side of that coin, people who don't understand what goes into it, let it help them set really unrealistic expectations of what their body is, should be, and can be. Okay. That's not the fault of the sport in any way. I can see that. I can see um, that. So in terms of like an outsider looking in a general population individual looking in seeing Jay Cutler and thinking, Oh, if I follow this training program in this magazine that Jay Cutler's name is attached to, I can look like this someday. Yeah. Which is the most unrealistic expectation you can set. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, even regardless of timeline and we've, we've talked a lot, the two of us about how just, even reasonable goals on an unreasonable timeline are ridiculous. Yeah. The I'm going to be Jay Cutler. You're not. Yeah. <laughs> you're just not. Right. Yeah. It's such a unique sport in that sense that it's, and I guess there's, this is somewhat of a factor in every sport, but in bodybuilding, I would say more than any other genetics are such a big factor of like, and I, I really do believe that everyone can drastically change their physique. I think that you can build a ton of muscle. I don't care if you're a hard gainer or a quote unquote ectomorph, you can build a ton of muscle, but genetically you're not going to achieve Jay Cutler's physique or really anybody's physique other than what you are genetically capable of. So it is a, it's a weird sport like that because you're always limited by that genetic factor. Mm -hmm. And then the best of the best in the world are thereby the, the competitors with the best genetics. Yeah. So it's, it's hard to make those comparisons. It is because it's a huge distinction between your best and the best. Yeah. Right. So yes, I a hundred percent agree with you. People can get big. They can get in significantly better shape. They can get a ton leaner. You can look freaking phenomenal, but it's not going to make you Phil Heath. Yeah. Agreed. hundred percent. So do you think the initial goal setting you're talking about the positive where somebody sees Jay Cutler and they go, okay, uh, I want to get in better shape. I don't want to look like Jay Cutler but I want to get in better shape and it's going to get me started on that journey. Do you think that outweighs the negatives, the people that go, okay, I'm going to look like Jay Cutler, or do you think it's an even split? I honestly don't know. Uh, that's a really hard question to, to answer because I also typically don't work with the population of folks who would like come to you because they want to look like Jay Cutler. Right. Right. You know, like no one looks at me and goes, that's the guy who's going to make me, just a mountain of muscle. 
Fair right. Okay. So, so my personal experience with that is somewhat limited. Yeah. Um, I tend to get more of the people who are the ones who set a good initial goal and let it kind of snowball into an unrealistic expectation. Okay. So a lot of my experience with that is kind of bringing people back down to earth. Sure. Okay. So you're, you're really mainly experiencing the positive impact initially. And then Mm -hmm. you're sort of like the, the voice of reason, the buffer that (laughs) keeps them from going over to that negative space yeah. Of oh, and in five years, I'm going to have arms like Jay Cutler. Yeah, and then being really upset when it doesn't happen that fast or right. at all. Right. And tying some kind of worth to it, like right. self worth. Right. Okay. So, like, my role is usually like I've gotten a lot better at it over the years. And at yes. this point, when people say, "Oh, I want to look like fill in the blank," it doesn't even have to be an actual bodybuilder, but someone who's in really good shape. Yeah immediately having them pick out the pieces of that that appeal to them Mm -hmm. so that you can drive towards something specific. Yeah. Because I want to look like Jay Cutler. Okay, cool. What is it about Jay Cutler's physique that really appeals to you? Like which parts would you like to emulate? Because I'm not going to make you 400 pounds of muscle at 5% (laughs) body fat. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Right. Um, oh, it's, it's his shoulders. I like the shoulders. Like, oh, cool. Do you like the, the size of the shoulders, shape of the shoulders, like the ratio of his shoulders to his waist? Like, what is it that you think is the coolest? And if you can recreate the piece of that, when you break it down to a smaller level that they really connect with, yeah, that's something that's more like in, in my lane. That makes total sense. Um, how often do you encounter that? Where, how, how many of your pros- prospective clients have a specific person that they're trying to emulate, whether it's bodybuilding or I feel like this is especially popular now with uh, like Marvel movies, like all the, all the muscular people we're seeing on TV now, how often Um, do you experience that? You know, it's, it's not as often as you might think, although of the ones I do, most of them want to look like Chris Hemsworth. Yeah. He's, he's the guy they pick and who doesn't, I mean, I'd love to look like Chris Hemsworth, but I'm five, nine. Sorry, Um, (laughs) but I mean, it's, it's not as common and really the way that my onboarding process goes with new clients, Mm -hmm. it's, it's geared to steer them away from external fixations like that. So like, again, the the way that I run uh, training for my clients is kind of set up for me to not have a very good answer to that question, which I apologize for. Yeah, no, that makes um, sense. I can tell you, it definitely still happens. It's usually Chris Hemsworth. And yeah. when it does, um, we do have to pick an attribute. Mm-hmm. Is it the leanness? Is it the abs? Is it the arms? Yeah. It's one of those three. Yeah. Um, I've never had anyone ask to have Chris Hemsworth's legs. <laughs> nope. <laughs> For sure not. Um, no, the reason I ask is because I feel like bodybuilding as a sport, especially is still like, like you said, Arnold classic is on uh, ESPN. It is somewhat in the limelight, but it's still sort of an underground weird thing for most people. Like it's not, I wouldn't call it a mainstream sport. I think people know about it as a, I think everybody knows about it in, in the sense of, like a lifestyle, I guess, but not many people know about 
the sport of it. Like mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think bodybuilders are just the same thing as powerlifters. Like they're just big, strong guys in the gym. They don't think like, Oh, they're getting ready for, they're getting ready to get on stage in their tidy whities in 10 weeks. And it's a, it's an event. It's a sport. Yeah. Um, what do you think that as a competitor and as a prep coach, I and, and others in the industry can do to make it seem more accessible to the type of clients you have to, to like general population people? Um, visibility. And I, I know that we just talked about how it's televised and things like that, but that's only at the very most elite level. Yeah. Like if you only watched like, I don't know, Barry Bonds, hit forever yeah baseball would seem very different right true so it needs more like ground level visibility and part of that's hard because a lot of gyms don't have enough or the right kind of equipment especially if you go to more studio things or like a commercial gym is usually not as well equipped as like the bodybuilding gyms yeah that's weird to say with franchises like gold's because gold's gym is the bodybuilding gym you know right but when you get out of here in the suburbs i mean that's where soccer moms go exactly it's so, not like gold's venice is still a bodybuilder's gym for sure but gold's as a like you said as a franchise is it's different now yeah so like there, there are some smaller gyms and like you're wearing a shirt for a good one mm-hmm. Um, like, like body shop and in, in Bothell where it's a bodybuilder's gym. Yeah. It's also not huge. No. It's, it's hard to have that high quality of equipment in that many plates and a huge space. Mm-hmm. So the bodybuilding con- uh, population is concentrated in that location. You might yeah. find one huge guy who goes to the gym down the street. Sure. But like the, the presence of local bodybuilders is very concentrated. People don't see it in their everyday health experiences. Yeah. I also wonder if we as local bodybuilders need to be better about being approachable when we are around the general public. I think, I mean, it's, it's easier said than done because if you are actually prepping and you're dieting, you don't feel like talking to anybody about bodybuilding. Like, my least favorite question when I was on prep was like, Oh, how's prep going? I got so sick of talking about it (laughs) because you just don't like you, you just want to do the work, put your head down and not have to think or talk about it to, or explain yourself, I guess, to the general public. Um, but that sucks. Like we should, if we want this sport to grow as a more accessible and more mainstream thing, then we should actually engage with the general public and be more uh, open and welcoming to those people, I think. I think so. And I think that there are ways that you can do that without, because I, I actually totally agree with you. I hate being interrupted while I'm working out. Yeah. I despise it. I'm there to do a job. Yeah. Like it's time for me. I'm in my own head. I'm focused and doing my own thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I don't bodybuild, but if I'm doing a weird thing for shoulder stability because I'm an ex-baseball player and my shoulders are crap, yeah. like, I don't want to explain it every time somebody sees me doing something weird. Yeah. Right? Oh, that's an unusual thing. What's that for? Isn't You know what? You, you're not going to use it, so who cares? Just don't bother right. me. Right. But that's, that's also the same thing. Like, you have Olympic weightlifters, right? And then Olympic weightlifting was made really, really popular 
and accessible by like CrossFit. Sure. So there's probably some way that the bodybuilding world could get together and do more introductory group level, like larger class things You're like, Hey, this is how basic prep works. It's a 90 day program. This is when you show up, blah, 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 blah. We do this all together. Like you could have crews of people who are amateur or weekend bodybuilders yeah. run it just like another product. Like if mm. you can make a CrossFit box, you can make a bodybuilding box. Yeah. I think that would be a lot, a lot easier. And then you also don't have as many of the hardcore, like legit bodybuilders who you don't want to bother those guys. This is like, it's more than just a workout for them. I don't want to take their time away from what they're doing. So you can explain why bicep curls are actually useful. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) like they got better things to do, but if you want to run like a gym that makes bodybuilding style training more accessible to people, that's a great way to educate the population on how it works. Yeah. And kind of set some realistic expectations. Yeah. I like that, man. I like that idea a lot. Um, I think that, bodybuilding coaches especially are very they very rarely deviate from a one-on-one coaching program yeah in fact i don't think i've ever heard of something like that once um it's 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 always like direct line of communication coach to athlete um, whether it's online in person whatever it's it's a one-on-one focus yeah um, which is great for a high level athlete, obviously. And that's what you absolutely want. Absolutely has to be for a high level athlete. Yeah. Like you were talking about the genetic factor earlier. I mean, it's very true. And yeah. your coach needs to to customize every bit of it to you if you're a real competitor. Yeah. You just want a six pack and to not eat like garbage. I mean, you can group train that. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Cool. So do you think the actual application of the general public? Um, like if it, the general public training in that fashion will bring more awareness to the actual sport, the actual, like if people are sort of training like that and emulating that in a group setting, they're more likely to go and, and tune into the Olympia, that kind of thing. 100%. Okay. I mean, look at CrossFit. It came out of nowhere. A bunch of people started going in big groups, hurting themselves all weekend. Yeah. And now like the CrossFit games is one of the most televised events on the planet. Yeah. So if you get a bunch of people who, I mean, they're going to read these magazines and do bro splits anyway. Right. Right. Why not do it well? And under professional supervision, you can have its own community and support group, just like CrossFit does. And then you guys all get together for a barbecue and you watch the Olympia. Like there's no reason you can't do that. Maybe then they start televising earlier and earlier competitions. Then you can see like qualifiers and, Oh shit. Great. That guy had a pro card today. That's awesome. I'm so glad we watched that. Yeah. See, that's a really good point. I never really thought of it that way, but when you're watching, let's use baseball as an example, since that's Mm -hmm. what you're so versed in. Uh, If you're watching a baseball season, you watch the whole season. You don't, you don't just watch, uh, dude, I'm blanking on what the the big, the world series (laughs) for seven games at the end of the thing. And no one gets to watch the rest of it. Yeah. The World Series is only fun to watch as a baseball fan um, because you watch the lead up to it. Yep. So the Olympia is the World Series of bodybuilding. If that's all you see, then all you see are these massive freaky physiques and you didn't actually get to watch the journey that took them there. 
Yeah. I guess you, a little bit more so now with social media and whatnot, but still, it would be, it's, it's not, not the same popular, right? I mean, yeah. even using baseball as the example, yeah. just at the professional level, there's major league baseball where you can right. watch spring training the entire regular season. There's an all-star game. And then there's the entire postseason leading up to the world series. It's like yeah. eight, nine months out of the year. It's an yeah. insane amount of baseball. It's 162 games per team. Yeah. Then you have all of minor league baseball. There's three or four levels of minor league baseball. They're not televised as much, but they still are. And they have their own postseason. Then you have college baseball. And every decent college has a baseball team at varying levels. But you can follow a player from high school through college ball, through the minor leagues, all the way through to the major leagues. And then you can watch them every single season if you want to pick a guy. Right. I'm going to pick right. a team. You can watch them farm players from their minor league system, scout players in college and high school, and then build a world series team. You can't do any of that with bodybuilding. There's just not the same exposure to it. Yeah, that's very true, man. I think that there's a couple of up and coming pros right now that are doing a really good job of uh, sort of giving fans that experience via social media, mm-hmm. uh, YouTube, especially one specific example I think of is there's a guy named James Hollingshead who's just a freak. He's, he's enormous. Um, he's an awesome pro. I guarantee he'll be top six of the Olympia very soon. Um, but he, for the last couple of pro shows he did, did like a full on documentary series on YouTube leading up to it, where it was like 45 minute episodes and there would be like 10 of them. And it would completely document his whole prep, which was really cool. That was actually one of the things that I used to distract myself from the 90 minutes of cardio that I was doing (laughs) towards (laughs) the end of my prep. So yeah. Do you think things like that, do you think social media can make up that difference? Um, in the same way that like the televised stuff can for other sports. I don't think you can reach as broad of an audience that way. Yeah. Honestly, because you have to build it by individual. So there's not a ton of exposure to new people like for the consumer. Like if I follow big freaking Neil and I watch your whole prep, that's great. But by watching your social media, I have very little exposure to other bodybuilders who are doing similar things. Right. Right. So I think um, you can make a good enough pitch for it. I would probably approach a streaming service that has had really successful bouts of sports documentaries. And like, you know, every time pumping iron goes on Netflix, it jumps to number one, like immediately. Yeah. So it's not a hard sell to say that people are interested in these supposed freaks of nature that just build muscle. Like it's nothing. Right. If you can pitch even like a limited series, or like a seasonal thing, go to Hulu and be like, Hey man, I want to do a documentary about these eight guys and we're going to watch them prep. We're going to watch them compete. We're going to watch them go from amateur to professional and their first professional meet. Yeah. Like you'll have a revolving door of guys who are in and out of this docu-series that you do. Yeah. And it's a great way to like prove that there's interest enough that maybe you could get this on more regularly. I like that. That's a really good point because YouTube is great, but you're sort of reliant on people's ability to find you Mm -hmm. and like, sure, maybe you get a lot of subscribers and you're pretty popular and your video gets a hundred thousand views. That's awesome. But Netflix, if that's on the homepage of Netflix, 
millions of people are going to see it. Right. That makes total sense, man. I like that idea a lot. Um, Cool. That was a really, really good perspective on some, some bodybuilding concepts Uh, in that same vein. uh, This is the part of the show that I've been looking forward to the most (laughs) as someone with such an extensive education um, as a personal trainer, a coach, um, both in terms of training principles and also nutrition, I want to bounce some more specific bro sciencey questions off you and get a, get an answer from you as to how bullshit they really are. <laughs> Does that sound good to you? Sounds great. Okay, cool. Uh, one of my personal favorites, which I've talked about on this show a couple of times already. Can you make your skin thinner slash thicker? Why or why not? So to put this in context, mm-hmm. in the last couple of weeks of prep, it's really, really common to see uh, all your protein sources get swapped for white fish. Mm-hmm. And the reasoning behind it is often cited as uh, white fish makes your skin appear thinner. Okay. Which is weird. <laughs> uh, is that possible? Can you actually change the thickness of your skin? I don't think the thickness of your skin actually changes. I think the appearance of your skin changes. Okay. Um, especially not in that timeline. I mean, I'm sure there are ways that skin can get thinner. Mostly that's probably like malnourishment stuff. Yeah. Which, I mean, in all honesty, the end of prep, you're malnourished. True. <laughs> but it's for such a short period of time that I don't think that your skin across your entire body is somehow thinner and more transparent. I right. think mostly you're just dehydrated and you look drier. <laughs> Agreed. But uh, that, that's probably what I would assume, assume what that is. Okay. Um, is there anything about whitefish specifically that would make sense to make your skin appear different? I don't know. I'd have to look into it. I, okay. It's probably pretty high fat content for, for a fish. Uh, we're talking like the really, really lean white fish, like a lean white fish, like a cod or a tilapia, something like that. Like not a halibut. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Like the lean is like no fat. There's no fat in the, in these, these types of fish. I mean, one thing that you could look at is that your cells are a lipid bilayer. So okay. the less fat you have in there, honestly, the more rigid your cell walls get and they can get a little flatter looking that way. Okay. If there are enough of them. So um, that, that breaks it down to a cellular level. When you're that lean, you're kind of getting to that point. Sure. Well, I will say that is the closest I've ever gotten to an actual scientific explanation for that. Like that's, <laughs> that's pretty good. Uh, would it be any different though than like a really lean, like chicken breast? I don't think so. Okay. Okay. I don't know. There might be something else about, about the fish or the, uh, the omega ratios, like the omega threes to sixes. Okay. Like that. Got it. Yeah. I always thought of it more as like fish is so that this type of fish is so lean, so low in fat. Therefore you're shaving off a few calories by switching all your protein sources to it. And it's so easily digestible, at least in my experience that like you, you eat, if you're eating white fish six times a day, it sort of feels like you're never eating. Like it just goes right through you like that. <laughs> um, 
So I wonder if it's more due to that and the fact that you're actually shaving off calories from fat mm-hmm. um, and you're just losing an extra tiny little ounce of body fat under your skin. That's sort of, that's sort of my logic. Yeah. I mean, just, you'll be able to see really, really small differences in subcutaneous fat like that. So yeah, it, it could just be that yeah. honestly, that's, okay. that's honestly more likely than it manipulating significantly the cell membrane. <laughs> sure, sure. That's cool though. I like that we had sort of a, an explanation for that. Um, okay. Moving on is fasted morning cardio really better for burning fat. This is something that pretty much every bodybuilder does during prep is they get a first thing in the morning and before they eat, sometimes they'll drink like essential aminos. So I guess they're not technically fasted. Sometimes they won't. Um, but they'll do cardio early in the morning before their first meal. Does it really matter? I don't think so. Okay. Um, I don't think there's any scientific reason for that specifically in isolation to make a significant difference. Okay. Um, that being said, if it gets your metabolic fire stoked earlier in the day, Mm. if it, uh, starts you out at like negative 400 calories. Yeah. Great. It it will definitely impact your overall goal over the course of the day, but I don't, I've never seen anything that would lead me to believe that just because you haven't eaten cardio, that you somehow miraculously burned a significantly higher percentage of fat from it. Okay. Let's assume that when you're waking up, you're completely glycogen depleted Mm -hmm. because if you are in the later stages of prep, you're going to wake up pretty glycogen depleted. Does that have an impact at all? If your glycogen stores are empty and you're not getting any fuel from carbs, does that matter? So I don't, I don't think so because the way that energy systems work, you have to go through the first two. Anyway, there are three of them. The first one is phosphocreatines, right? You get ATP from that stuff. You burn through that in like 20 seconds and then you go into your glycolytic system. If you don't have glycogen stores, you steal amino acids and create a substitute. It's a process called gluconeogenesis Mm. and you make something that acts the same as glycogen but you build it out of the building blocks from your existing lean tissue. Mm. So that's probably why they take the aminos before they do it so that you're not actually sacrificing any muscle for it. But given that you're, you're literally just swapping one source of energy for another, right? So it's, it's a effort to maintain zero Mm. on your amino acid consumption. And then you go into your oxidative system anyway, where you run off of fat, you use the Krebs cycle, it sends stuff down the electron transfer chain, like you just burn through fat that way. Mm. So you could do it exactly the same and just skip the aminos by eating beforehand. Mm. And end of the day, you're going to end up in the same spot. Okay, uh, so, the, so the amount, how should I put this? How fed you are, mm-hmm doesn't impact the speed at which you reach that energy system where you're burning fat. No. Okay. Okay. There you go. Um, sort of in the same vein here, will six meals a day really get you more jacked than eating three meals per day, given equal macros and calories between the two. So you're literally splitting up the exact same food, either six ways or three ways. 
This is one that I think depends on a, your level of experience and B how far along in prep you are. Okay. I think there is something to meal timing when you get to a certain body fat percentage or below. Okay. Um, really overall, if your calorie expenditure across the day is the same, you're going to lose the same amount of weight. What I think the real difference maker is, is what happens to your body throughout the day and how it looks and how it feels. Sure. So if you eat six meals a day and it helps your energy be more even, it keeps your insulin cortisol levels more regular throughout the day. And they're not as volatile. Yeah. Um, helps you stay more hydrated without hanging on to a bunch of water. Mm. You're going to look better more consistently throughout the day because you're at a point in your prep where those changes are perceptible. Yeah. If you're on your way down to it, I mean, total calories are total calories mm. and to a certain point, yeah, I can have three meals today and I feel fine on that. Sure. It's, it's kind of the same, but kind of not, you know? Okay. I can agree with that for sure. Um, okay. So let's flip flop that and let's say you're in a surplus. So let's say it's off season. Your goal is to build the maximum amount of muscle possible. Would that make a difference? Again, given that you're eating the exact same calories, you're in a, you're in the same surplus regardless. So assuming that, that someone could do that, like let's say take take a 200 pound man, for example. Yeah. Let's say you're on what, one to one and a half grams of protein per pound of body weight. Mm -hmm. 300 grams of protein over three meals is a hell of a lot of food at each meal. It is. All right. So I think that using a strict calorie to calorie uh, way of looking at it is kind of flawed because it's not really possible for a lot of people. Sure. I think the six meals is obviously more effective because you could eat 50 grams of protein six yeah. times a day and you'd make out a lot better than trying to stuff your face three times. So when you say possible, do you mean because just like you, you're, it's going to be hard to eat that much protein in one sitting. Yeah. Or do you think that you're not actually going to uptake all of that protein in one sitting? So there, there's been a lot of research in the last, I don't know, five, six years that has shown that that whole, you can only synthesize, digest, or utilize 40 grams of protein per sitting is crap. That's yeah. not true at all. It just takes longer. I mean, the, the higher volume of it you take in, the longer it's going to take to synthesize and utilize. Okay. So if you're cramming down a hundred grams and you have to eat again in a couple hours, it just lengthens the window that it's going to take for you to, to use all that protein. I don't okay. think you're going to catch up in a significant way. Um, your meal planning would have to be pretty far apart which puts you with the same eating windows doing it six times anyway. So why not make it more comfortable and sustainable? Right. Right. Cool. Okay. I think I agree with all that. Um, okay. Moving on to some more training specific stuff. Do you think you can shape a muscle in specific ways by targeting it from different angles? So a good example of this that you hear all the time is you want to increase your outer quad sweep or in, in more trainery terms, your vastus lateralis uh, by doing leg exercises with a more narrow stance. Another really common one is uh, my, my rowing movements make my back thicker, my vertical pulling, my lat pull downs, my chin ups make my back wider. 
Is there any truth to that? Or is if you're contracting a muscle, you're contracting a muscle? Again, kind of depends. So there is okay. truth to that. Um, it has to do with the direction of the striations in your muscle. So when it comes to actually contracting muscles, there are a yeah. couple things that go into that. There's something called the all or nothing principle. Okay. And every motor unit within your muscle, because your muscle is pretty much just like a Russian nesting doll of smaller bundles of muscle fiber. Yeah. And you get to a point where there's a thin layer of fascia called your endomysium. It has a motor unit in it and all the muscle fibers inside that all fire 100% or zero. That being said, outside of that one motor unit, you have buttloads of motor units that go around that to make up a muscle belly. Okay. Right. I don't know how you consciously control which motor units in your muscles fire or not. And that I think is the only way that you could choose certain muscle fibers over others. Okay. When you blow it up to an actual muscle group. So like, lats are going to get wide, the striations in those muscles, the fibers run in a wide direction. Yeah. Right. And I mean, your traps do too, to a certain extent, but they don't have anywhere to go with that. So if you're going to create hypertrophy in your traps, it has to get thicker. Okay. Right. You can actually build width because striations, your muscle fibers move that way with your lats. So I can see something to that when it comes to the quad sweep, just build your outside quad muscle. It's an entire group of muscles. It can be, um, shit, what's the word? Isolated, yeah. that particular muscle in your quads okay. based on foot placement, based on internal external rotation at your hip or knee, things like that. So you can definitely work on that specifically instead of like your VMO, your vastus medialis obliquus, things like that. Um, and that's totally fine. I, I wouldn't, in strict technical terms, consider that shaping a muscle though. Mm. The shape of an actual muscle is determined by your genetics. Sure. And you can develop that muscle to be larger, smaller, denser, whatever you want to do, but it's going to be shaped the way it's going to be shaped. Yeah. So really you're not shaping a muscle differently. You're just working different muscles, yeah. right? Cause they're, cause they're entirely different muscle groups. Right. So like the way people go, all right, hammer curl for thicker arms mm -hmm. and then do like a palms up curl for a better bicep peak. Mm -hmm. It's because your hammer curl is barely touching your actual biceps, but it's crushing your brachialis. Right. So like it's two different muscle groups. You can develop one or the other and right. you can accentuate them. So like your biceps, two muscles, there's an outside and an inside. You get those pinkies up really high, super supinated grip. You can mm -hmm. get the inside more, but you're working that particular muscle more. You're not working a specific piece of a muscle. That makes total sense. So would that also apply to uh, like a, like doing chest exercises on an incline? Mm -hmm. Can you isolate your upper pecs or is that all one muscle? Your pec is one big muscle. Mm -hmm. You can accentuate pieces of it based off of joint angles, but that's again, because of the striations of individual muscle fibers. Got it. Okay. So, um, really the, the more vertical you get, obviously the more it goes to your shoulders anyway. So if yeah. you're looking for pec development, uh, from my understanding, if you want upper pec development, the best movement is actually an eccentric decline bench press because of the stress it puts on there and the microscopic trauma that it does to those muscle fibers. Mm, interesting. Um, but because you can't just say, hey, only half my pec's going to work on this one. 
<laughs> I mean, it's not two separate muscles, so you can't really do them separately. Got it. So if it is two separate muscles, for example, your vastus lateralis versus the rest of your quad, you can isolate it. But if it's one big muscle, you can't, uh, you can't really, you can't isolate specific parts necessarily. Like, and even then, I mean, you know, it's still knee extension. Mm -hmm. So the other stuff's going to fire, but you can put it into a position where it mostly taxes that one muscle. Got it. Okay. Nice. Um, in your opinion is the traditional bro split. So one body pop per one body part per day, uh, five to six training sessions a week. Is that the ideal routine for maximizing building muscle getting bigger? Um, I'll say yes, because of practice. Okay. Uh, in practice, I think it is because it's it's easy to stick to that way. Mm-hmm. The length and intensity of a workout that was either push pull legs or like a total body workout several times a week. Yeah. Um, research has shown that total volume over the course of the week, as long as that is equal, your hyperperfect gains should be about equal as well. Okay. Which is great in theory, but no one can do that. Mm, yeah. If you have chest day, you like chest, let's say the one that's in all the magazine, chest and tries, back and buys, legs, shoulders and arms, and then whatever, I don't know what the other day is, another leg day, maybe. Yeah, second leg day. Um, you're really gonna cram five days of training into one workout, split it in half, and like do that yeah. kind of volume in two or three workouts a week. There's no way. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Like so that's why that is superior for sure. And I, I think yeah. if you're really looking to put on some size, I think um, the most overlap you can do, like the least intense program is probably a push pull legs uh-huh. and you're still going to do it six days a week. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> right. Right. So you might as well just do a bro split and hit it really hard. Yeah. You're recovering. Basically better. if you're doing a push pull legs, to equal the volume, you're basically cutting the workouts in half and then doubling the frequency, right? Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Nice. And I also like the bro split because it gives you more opportunity to do uh, single joint exercises and yeah. weak point training. Yeah. Like if you were to cram your chest and shoulder days into your push day, mm-hmm. you got like three or four primary movements to do now. When are you going to do any spot training? Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, you would almost have to do all your prime movers on one day and then all your spot training on the other day. But then at that point, like you said, why not just do a bro split? Yeah, you're right back to a six-day split anyhow. Yeah, totally. Okay. It's really refreshing uh, how many bro things that you're agreeing with right now. I like it a lot. (laughs) (laughs) Bro science is like... These are all things they haven't been found out through strict quote scientific experimentation, but I mean, there's anecdotal evidence to back up a lot of it. If it didn't work, no one would use it. Right. So you can take bro science, you can give it context, you can understand it, and then you can probably make it better. Yeah. It's not like it's untrue. Yeah. I've never understood the increasingly popular thing of sort of ignoring all of the super jacked people, the most jacked people on the planet 
and only listening to the uh, skinny sciencey guy over here and just completely throwing out what the, what the jacked guy is saying. Like, I'm not saying that that qualifies him over the science guy necessarily. Um, but why would you, why would you completely ignore that guy's advice? I, I just right. don't get it. Something obviously worked. Yeah. That's what I'm saying. And let's say even they're putting it across in a really broy, stupid sounding way and you don't believe any of it, but the results are there. So there's yeah. some truth to it and it's your job to go figure it out instead of writing it off because you didn't jive with the messenger. Right. <laughs> right. hundred <laughs> percent. Um, okay. Does a machine or cable stimulate muscle growth in the same way as a free weight? Um, and if not, which in your opinion is better for, let's say for building muscle. So I wouldn't say one's better than the other. I'd say they're different and it comes okay. down to the path of resistance. So let's talk about cables because cables are, are probably the easiest comparison to make. Yeah. Um, if you're free weight training, let's say you do a dumbbell row, a single arm dumbbell row, gravity straight down based on the arc of that movement and where you're strongest throughout that movement, the relative resistance can change. And like even bands are a better example where it has accommodating resistance. Sure. And when the band is most stretched, the resistance is highest. You take all the fluctuations and resistance throughout a movement out of the picture when you get it on a cable. Mm. Because the pulley makes it so that that resistance is even all the way through. Take a step away from the cable, doesn't matter. Resistance didn't change. Yeah. You're at the beginning of a movement, you're at a mechanical disadvantage. That's fine. The weight's exactly the same as when you're at your mechanical advantage. Got it. Okay. So when it comes to that, like muscles fire, like I said, there's the all or nothing principle when it comes to innervation. Mm. So if you use the muscle, you use the muscle. What I think makes a difference is either where you feel like your weaker points are in the movement and the contraction of that muscle or in the cumulative contraction of several muscles. Um, and if that's a point that, that needs to be addressed. Yeah. So one thing I like a lot about cables is it gives you just tons of ability to manipulate tempo. Yeah. So the resistance isn't going to change no matter what you do. If you have a change in your form, if you have anything like that, the cable doesn't care. Mm. Gravity hasn't changed. Your, your position in relation to gravity hasn't changed. Um, yeah, if you need to really do some eccentric damage to something, cables are phenomenal. Yeah. Otherwise, I mean, free weights, you can do the same thing. You just have to be more cognizant of how you're set up because your direction of resistance is always going to be straight down. Right. Sure. Um, in your opinion, is there a difference in total amount of muscle being recruited versus one over the other? Like, let's say, let's use a specific example. Um, we'll use your example of a straight bar barbell curl versus a straight bar cable curl. Are you, I've, I've always had this sort of old school bias towards the barbell curl in thinking, okay, more of my muscle fibers are going to be stimulated by this free weight than they are on this cable exercise. Is that complete uh, superstition bullshit or is that viable? It depends on an individual basis. 
okay. is the thing. Um, so because of the way, I mean, your, your elbow is a simple lever. Yeah. Right. So the fulcrum's in the same spot and then the weight's going to move around the fulcrum and gravity is your resistance. So there are parts of that movement that are going to feel easier, even though the weight hasn't changed. Right. You can change that based on your orientation to the cable or your orientation to the ground with the barbell. I would say that really load is probably more of a determinant Mm -hmm. in how hard that muscle fires. Okay. And I think like, so, so what I'm trying to eventually get around to, I think in a very roundabout way (laughs) is like, let's say you're curling something really heavy. Yeah. You struggle with the bottom part of the curl, right? The bottom half of that lift is usually where you have the least mechanical advantage. Okay. So you are limited in the top half of the curl by what you can get through the bottom half of the curl. Right. If you have a cable, they feel the same because gravity is not your resistance anymore. It's the pulley system. Right. So if there is a part of your lift where like you can't get the barbell all the way to the top, mm-hmm. like the, the, the oh, this is a really bad way of explaining this. This is why. So basically you're saying if mechanically, yeah, one variation allows you to handle more total load. Yes. That's going to stimulate more muscle than the variation where you can't handle as much load because of the mechanical limitation. Yes, exactly. Got it. Okay. Nailed it. That was a, I'm so glad you can read my mind because that's <laughs> really bad it's spot. really fortunate that we're buddy brain twins. <laughs> All right, buddy. I just got two more questions for you. Hit me. Uh, going back to some nutrition stuff here to close. Uh, do you think it's better to increase cardio or decrease calories Um, or is it exactly the same? If you could be absolutely certain the number of calories you're burning through cardio, which you can't, and the number of calories that you were not eating were exactly the same, Mm. it would be a wash. Okay. However, you have no idea how many calories you're actually burning through activity. Chances are your eating plan has already factored in your average amount of activity for the day. Mm -hmm. So in practice, the only realistic way to control your calorie deficit is through controlling your intake. Okay. Agreed. Um, So let's say, let's put you in the position. Let's let's pretend you're a prep coach for a second. Mm -hmm. You've got a client who's on prep and They've been in a deficit for however long the prep is, you know, 10 weeks, 12 weeks, whatever it is. They've sort of hit a fat loss plateau, but their calories are already pretty low. Would you, you activity? Would you increase activity? Okay. Yeah. Because okay. there is like a, a floor to how little you can eat. Yeah. You sure. know, I mean, you, you can't just eat less forever. Right. <laughs> right. You're at the bottom of what you can take in and still function as a human being and, you know, not die. Yeah. Like then the only way to create more deficit is to increase activity. Sure. But it's not a, it's not an issue of increasing cardio will burn fat more effectively. It's more an issue of, uh, you can't cut your calories down any lower than they already are. So you should just move more. Okay. Right. And at that point you're already lifting. So you're maintaining the lean mass you have. Yeah. Right. It's not going anywhere. Mm. 
all you can burn is fat, man. Like you're not eating enough to have any other options. So whatever activity you do, whatever deficit you're in, it's going to eat whatever's left. Yeah. Got it. Okay. All right. We're going to close with a, a little bit of a doozy here. Give me very controversial topic. Assuming you track everything absolutely flawlessly, which let's be real is impossible, but let's just pretend it is, <laughs> is if it fits your macros just as effective for fat loss, let's say in a prep specifically compared to your traditional prep diet, you know, you're eating the same thing pretty much six times a day or variations of the same thing. Um, provided the macros and calories are identical is one better than the other. Um, man. So, so in, in the scenario that we've set up here, you've made it absolutely even. So the approach doesn't matter because the result will be the same. Like the, okay. if you run the play, you get the result. Okay. Um, we don't have to go a hundred percent in the other direction, but we can take a little bit and be like, all right, let's, let's say when you say bro diet, let's talk about that white fish you were talking about earlier and prescribed carbs. You have the same macro things. If you are guessing as to how you're going to fill those macros so that it fits every day, it's going to be less effective. Sure. So at the end of your prep, the bro diet is going to be better because in practice, Mm. its application will be more effective. Mm. Now, if you are, let's say an average person who's just getting into bodybuilding and you are at the beginning of a very, very long quote prep thing. Yeah. If it fits your macros will work for a while, it'll Mm. be just as good. Like you can probably stick to pretty basic concepts and get a long way. Yeah. But eventually the only way to control it effectively is going to be the bro diet because it's in pieces. It's easy to control. It's easy to manipulate quantities of your macronutrients um, the ease of use will breed consistency. The consistency will get you what you want. Mm. Okay. So it's not, it's not necessarily the foods themselves that are superior. It's the consistency of macros and the complete removal of any guesswork that makes For it superior. While. Once you get to a point, the, the foods do matter. A calorie is not a calorie is not a calorie. Okay. You know, it just takes a long time for you to start seeing that materialize in your physique. So like you eating a lean chicken breast versus you eating beef is going to have two very different effects on you Mm. when you read a a certain body fat percentage. Yeah. And what, what do you attribute that to? Is that just sort of how your body is absorbing those nutrients Yeah, because the nutrient profile is different. I mean, there's a reason that beef is a less lean fat. Um, It has a slightly different fat profile in it. Um, They're both protein sources, but they're, you know, they they are different. Otherwise, they'd be the same animal. (laughs) Um, And while the differences might not be huge in a lot of cases, and so like with general population or athletes, I don't make a distinction 90% of the time. Just get your protein numbers in, bro. Yeah. Like once you are at a point where every little bit matters, like the chemistry matters, the digestion patterns matter, the effect on your gut health matters. 
And all those things matter because they manifest in other parts of your physique. So if you eat a bunch of beef instead of a bunch of white fish, your protein numbers might be the same. Your fat content might be similar, but the effects it's going to have on your GI tract might cause you to retain more water or might have your skin have some kind of issue or might affect your energy negatively or things like that. Yeah. And those things, I mean, not even over time, they pay pretty short term dividends when you're at the end of a prep. Mm-hmm. Cool, man. I, I really, really like all your answers. <laughs> I think that there's this, there's this thing right now that's really popular to do with sort of like science minded fitness people of just sort of talking down to all of these concepts like, oh, that's ridiculous. Why, why would you eat six times a day? Who has, <laughs> who has time for that? You know, in this perfect laboratory scenario we concocted. Yeah. 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 And I, I think guys. bodybuilding as a sport is a game of not even inches of centimeters. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And all the things that we're talking about, are negligible in most cases in most, but these are the cases. Exactly. And bodybuilding those minutia actually matter and they add up to something perceivable in your physique. Mm-hmm. So I think that's a really, really cool distinction to make. And the average, you know, sciencey fitness expert doesn't seem to want to make it. So I think people have trouble understanding what they're speaking to. Yeah. Um, there's a huge fad right now that every answer should apply to everyone. And it doesn't mm-hmm. like just, it can't, there's no yeah. possible way. So if you come on a bodybuilding podcast and I'm not a bodybuilding coach, but I'm not going to answer your questions solely in the frame of reference to my target client. Yeah. Because that's not who we're talking about. I'm not going to go, Oh man, no, if calories are equal, everything's fine because that's just simply not true for bodybuilders. Well, it's cool, man, too, because you're, like I said, at the beginning, you're, uh, you know, all the science behind this stuff. You're very qualified to speak on it. Um, but because you're not part of the bodybuilding world, you're not a prep coach. You don't have the bias towards the, uh, for back, lack of a better term, the superstitions that bodybuilding has accumulated over over the, the decades, you're just looking at it purely from an anecdotal and scientific background, which is, I think, really valuable for people to hear. Um, yeah, man, I I think this nope. was really this. I think this provided a lot of value for people and sort of will serve as a cool bridge if you are currently more of a general population person, but you're interested in getting into bodybuilding. Um, I think this is really, really valuable information for sure. Sure. Sweet man. Well, thank you for coming on. I'll be the first to tell you if you really want to be a bodybuilder, I'm probably not the coach for you, but if you're just getting into it, I can take you as far as we can. And then we'll hand you up off to big freaking Neil and he'll take you the rest of the way. See, that's why you and I are the perfect team, buddy. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> dude thanks for coming on man i really thanks appreciate for having it. me this was super fun this was fun we should definitely do this again um you know if as if we don't spend enough time on podcasts together we don't uh, i sincerely think we don't <laughs> i think we need at least two or three more uh <laughs> just just we'll start with two or three see how we feel and maybe do more and maybe <laughs> ramp it up from there exactly 
All right, guys. Uh, if you saw value out of this, which I'm sure you did, because this was awesome. Uh, please like, share, subscribe, do all the things. Help me cheat the algorithms on social media that I do not understand. Um, <laughs> and pass it along to a friend. You know, that's the most important thing. If you know somebody who is thinking about getting into bodybuilding, or maybe, you know, one of these high horse sciencey people that's stuck in their ways, send, send me their way, send this to them and, and, uh, spread the good word that health coach Kane has, has spoken today. Um, all right, man. Well, we should definitely have you on again. Thanks again for coming. I'd love to. And everybody, I will catch you next week. Later, bud. See ya.